My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Starting tomorrow, across Canada, people will be getting vaccinated against COVID-19. It's here, and I can promise you that a few things will happen. The first handful of these folks will be interviewed by every network that owns a camera, some newspaper or website somewhere, and probably more than one, will write a headline that includes V-Day. A lot of people who have had a really rough year will get a glimmer of hope, and some people will also loudly proclaim that they will never, ever take this vaccine. Even more people, though, won't loudly say anything. Instead, they will quietly express concerns about the vaccines. They're worried that they were developed too fast, that they haven't been tested enough and might not be ready, that they might be no better than our own immune systems. Some of these people might just really, really hate needles, and so they find reasons not to get them. Most of these people are not strict anti-vaxxers. Many of them have immunized their children. They're not completely anti-science, but they're nervous and they're scared. Yes, their fears might be unfounded, but that actually doesn't matter much to us right now because we need them to get over those fears and get their needles if we want to get enough Canadians vaccinated to really end this pandemic. And whether or not they've expressed their doubts openly to you, you probably know a few people who are vaccine hesitant, and we need to figure out how to get them on side. And screaming at them or posting angry comments on their Facebook is not going to do it. So, what is? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Sabina Vora-Miller is a clinical pharmacologist. She runs the Vora-Miller Foundation for Healthcare, which helps to fund, among other things, the Dalalana School of Public Health's Institute for Pandemics. Hello, Sabina. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. I think it's a really important conversation that we need to have today because people need to be armed with ways to convince people who are vaccine hesitant. Yes, I completely agree. Um, and I think that uh, what really needs awareness is the fact that anti-vaxxers are not this one big bucket. They're a spectrum. Um, you obviously have the ones that are, that are completely untouchable. Nothing you say or do will really work to... Um, to address their fears. You know, for instance, there was that child who nearly died of tetanus recently, needed months in the hospital for recovery and barely made it, but the parents still refused the second dose of DTaP. Um, these are these are really hard to reach um, and addressing their fears will frankly deplete you. Um, but then there's also that other bucket, the ones who are on the fence. Um, and these are people who are just constantly bombarded with fear-based messaging, um, you know, the, the type of messaging that really affects them subconsciously. Very often, they are new parents, they're worried about keeping their children safe, they're fearful, they're stuck in this 
um, analysis paralysis. They're getting all this conflicting information from various sides and they just don't know who to believe. Um, and I think addressing the fears that this subset of the vaccine hesitant folks have will be so critical in ensuring that there is a strong uptake of any of the COVID vaccines that are currently in development and approved. Where have you found uh, vaccine-hesitant people congregate? Uh, what are those groups and discussions like? Can you kind of just describe the communities where, where you see this happening? Sure. Um, and so so for me, I actually was exposed to these communities very recently. It was in 2017 when I had my son and parenting was a whole new you know, phenomenon. And so I joined all of these um, mom groups on Facebook. Um, and that is really where for the very first time I came across all of this vaccine um, misinformation and other scientific disinformation as well. It was a lot of sensational, provocative content um, that was being shared. Um, so, you know, I started getting more involved um, with a lot of these evidence-based uh, type things, given my background in science, as well as some of the vaccine on the fence groups. Um, these are large groups on, on Facebook. They have upwards of fifty to 100,000 people in each of these groups. Um, of course, you have some of those that are the very hardcore anti-vax groups, but you also have several of the ones that are people who are just on the fence and they just want more information and they just don't know how to navigate all the information that's coming to them. And even on, on mom groups, um, you know, I can tell you that I, I moderate a very large evidence-based parenting group and we have this questionnaire criteria to join our group. And one of them is, you know, what is their stance on vaccines? And I can tell you one in three people who are wanting to join our evidence-based group um, tells us that they're hesitant about vaccines and they want more information and they're just not sure. So it's a lot more pervasive than, you know, anyone actually thinks that this, this subgroup is. As someone with uh, your background in science and pharmacology, what was your reaction when you started joining these groups and found out how widespread that is? I was shocked. I have to say, I was absolutely shocked. I lived in this really nice echo chamber of science people. You know, I, I worked in academia. I worked in biotech. Um, all of the people, my friends, my circle were all science-based folks, and we've never actually you know, even remotely considered that vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax would be anything but a small cult group. Like that is what we thought um, was the case. And and for me to, to actually be exposed to this being so widespread was a complete shock to my system, which is why I realized, look, I, I have the background, I have the knowledge. This really is public service. Like this is something that people who are in the sciences need to be advocating for. We need to be increasing the voice of science and take more space, especially in, you know, in social media, where for the most part, public health messaging hasn't really been effective in coming across. And there's this huge dearth of information, of public health information um, that really needs to be addressed, this massive gap. Um, and that is really when I started uh, focusing. And I remember when I first joined these groups, you know, it would be half an hour a day, I would try and answer some questions. And then after a while, my husband basically said, you know, this is a full time job, you are spending hours and hours, you know, and it would be anything from addressing simple questions to actually writing documents, um, to synthesize, you know, all of the very complicated information out there into easy to understand 
um, you know, pot in like little buckets of information. Um, and, and that's really how I got started in this. How prevalent uh, is that vaccine misinformation and what does it look like in particular? Yeah, it is so pervasive. It really is. And and every time I speak with someone who, you know, this is a physician who are seeing patients, um, very often I get pushed back on that. Nope, it's not that. It's just a very small cult group. And, and I just think that perhaps a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant are not comfortable speaking to their physicians and their family doctors about some of these fears that they have. And it's a lot more prevalent than um, we think it is. Is. And very often it, you know, it takes, it has a very, it ha, it comes from this place of fear. It comes from this place of innocence almost. You know, you'll, you'll have questions posed by parents saying, you know, my baby is a preemie and I'm not sure about, you know, their vaccinations, they're coming up. Has anyone had any side effects with their child? Or, you know, I got my child is two months old. They just got their first dose of vaccinations and they've been crying all day. Have I damaged my child? I mean, all of this is coming from a place of fear. And I think very often um, social media, because you have that peer to peer connection, it is so much easier for people to voice their fears on social media than it would be, say, in person with their family doctor. So give me a sense then, um, maybe how you would, uh, when you're on those groups, respond to a couple of those things. I mean, in particular, the mother who would say, you know, he just got a vaccine and he's been crying and is concerned she might have damaged her child, which, you know, if you if you have a scientific background, might might sound kind of ridiculous, but also like I, we've all been there. If you're a parent and your kid is crying and you don't know what's going on, it's scary. It is scary. Absolutely. And it's interesting because now that I've been talking a lot about vaccine hesitancy, I've had other physicians coming up and telling me that they get it because they were in that exact same position, despite being a physician, you know, when their own child um, was really young. And absolutely. So, you know, I think what you really have to, first of all, understand is it's coming from a place of fear and and they're new parents and you have to empathize with it. You have to validate their feelings. If you're dismissive of their fears, it's it's not going to work. You have to really understand that they're coming across all of this pervasive fear-based misinformation constantly as well. And you have to speak to them in a language that they understand. If I'm going to throw out numbers or data um, or like these really complex statistics to them, I'm going to lose them before the, before I even start. Um, so I really have to, uh, you really have to understand that A, it's an emotional thing. You have to emotionally connect with them. And B, you have to give them information in a very clear, very concise and very empathetic way. I think also that the important thing to remember when you're having these discussions is that, I mean, it's a tricky space to navigate. You want to have that open, empathetic discussion, but at the same time, you also don't want to give space or placate any of the anti-vax rhetoric either. Um, so it's important not to present it as two opinions, um, but also you know, making sure that you're speaking to them in a language that they understand. Um, having that emotional connection, sharing stories. So for instance, with the mom who was really afraid about her child being fussy or crying after vaccinations, understand that, yes, they're worried about their child after, you know, and, and they're, they're obviously connecting the dots here. The child had vaccinations, now the child is crying, so they're connected. 
um, and, and think about ways on how you can actually address some of this with them, um, you know, and so perhaps ways to, to help suit the child, perhaps ways to try and make the child comfortable, and, and also understand that the parent needs some comforting. It's not just about the child that needs the comfort, but the parent needs some of that too. Um, and I think the one thing that some of the anti-vaxxers do really well is that they really hold the hands of those who are on the fence but i don't think us on the science side are doing that and i think that's where there's a huge gap that exists when you start those conversations uh, with people you meet in these groups how open are they uh, to hearing what you have to say or even changing their minds like how do you get them from sort of where they begin to the point where where they're actually taking concrete action Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that again, is very tricky. And I have to say it's 50-50. I think, first of all, you have to really understand whether the person who's coming with these questions um, are genuinely trying to understand. I mean, you do have the subset that, you know, are are just not you just are not going to be able to reach them so once you once you know that the person is genuine and they really are trying to come up um, i think you have a really good chance of um, getting through to them if you're if you're able to approach them in a way that they understand Um, the issue is that facts are not always enough to change someone's beliefs or fears right you need more than just facts um, and I think that if you're able to speak to them and and get them to the place where they're open to understanding, you have a really good chance of convincing them. Um, I have personally spoken to so many who have been concerned about you know getting their children's vaccinations and have then ultimately had those conversations with their family doctors, read a lot of the materials that we've provided, and have changed their mind. Um, and I can count um, you know dozens that 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 this has occurred with. So I don't think that if someone's coming to you with that vaccine hesitant approach, that they're a complete write-off. I I think that it's really the opposite, where it's an opportunity for us to address their fears and get them on board. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So far, we've kind of been talking about um, mothers and fathers and childhood vaccinations, but have you started to see uh, the same hesitancy around the COVID vaccines, which we'll start giving out in Ontario tomorrow? Is there a lot of doubt around whether or not these vaccines uh, will be taken? Yeah, there are so many questions coming up, and and you know, really, it's it's um, we it never before in history have we gone from identifying a pathogen to not just manufacturing and developing a vaccine, but having it approved in under a year. This has never happened before. You know, I would actually, I would actually like to pose the question that is it normal for things to take ten years? It shouldn't be a normal. That is not what we should be expecting, um, to occur because that's way too long and. I I personally marvel at the innovation that we've had this year with science. Um, But with that comes that distress and that fear that has due diligence actually occurred, have the trials 
Um, you know, have they actually vet out their data? Do we have a good idea what the side effect profile looks like? And these are all very valid concerns. Um, again, because we've never in, in history ever done this so quickly. Um, and so for sure, I, I, there are so many questions that are, that are coming to me from, um, from people who are, you know, who are either in our age group or even the elderly age group talking about whether these vaccines are safe to be used, how come they were developed so fast. Um, and, and these are all very valid questions. But, you know, like the way I like to explain to it is explain this is that, say, the mRNA vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer have, these are all platforms that have been in the works, like have been developed for a very long time. So we're lucky that we don't actually have to start the platform from ground, uh, you know, from step one. We had a lot of that work already done. And so the second we identify the genetic sequence of the virus, we were able to actually make that vaccine. Um, and the second, fa uh, the second thing is that the reason why we're able to go so fast is because um, we're, we're able to fast track a few things. Like, for instance, you, you know, you go to a restaurant and you will order your appetizer, you, you, you wait for a bit, you have your appetizer, you wait for a bit, you get your main course, you wait for a bit, you get your dessert. But imagine if you actually went to a restaurant and ordered your appetizer, your main, your dessert all at the same time and you were able to do it one after the other sequentially um, you're saving so much time and that's kind of what we've done with the with the vaccines so for instance we have things like rolling submission with health canada and what that means is that we are we're submitting data to health canada as data is available usually the process would be you wait for all the data to be available and then you submit it um, but we're saving time in the process if you're doing it um, as the data has become available uh, and so these are some of the reasons why we're actually able to get the vaccine out as fast as we can. But it doesn't mean that due diligence is not occurring. Um, so the other, the other concept is some, you know, understanding how these clinical trials are, are, um, are developed. So for the phase three trials, these are event driven. And so what that means is that the event in this case is someone getting the infection. And so it has to happen organically. So it's not as though people in the study are intentionally exposed to the virus. Um, so there's no real way to speed up a phase three event-driven trial. Um, and the other aspect is that, you know, we have things like data safety monitoring boards, but COVID has like really consumed all of us. We're constantly inundated with information. So when the trial, the AstraZeneca Oxford trial was halted, the whole world gasped. The whole world was like, oh my gosh, what just happened here? But these are common in trials. They're not, they're not something that do not occur. But most people don't know this. Most people don't understand that, you know, what a data safety monitoring board is. They're completely independent. They're constantly monitoring efficacy and safety of the trials. And they're there so that if anything comes up, any signal comes up, they're able to step in quickly and ensure that all due diligence is done. These are all great things. These are the fail safes that are in place and we know that it's actually working. But people don't realize that and people have also never heard of a data safety monitoring board and people have never before heard of trials ever being halted. But in fact, these are pretty pretty common and, and they're, the process for halting a trial uh, is, is fairly, you know, when you're designing a trial, these are all things that are taken into consideration from the very beginning. So it's not a new concept. People just don't know about them. I think there's probably been a lot of that uh, around COVID 
this entire year. I think um, some of your colleagues at the Dalalana School have referred to them as armchair epidemiologists, and we've all kind of we've all become that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much information out there, and it can be incredibly hard uh, to sift through it and and know what's coming from a credible place. And that's uh, my question for you with regards to the COVID vaccine online: is how much credible information is out there being distributed by public health because I really haven't seen much. Yeah, and that really is a gap. Um, and it's something that absolutely I've been looking into as well. Uh, there, There isn't a lot of information out there yet talking about, you know, what are mRNA vaccines and and even simple myth busting. Does it affect your DNA? No, it doesn't. But these are questions that are coming up and people need answers to these. And unfortunately, I think public health messaging has been one step behind all of this. I have noticed that, you know, I have I have a small science blog, it's called Unambiguous Science. And, and through this blog, what I try and do is address some of these concerns before they actually become widespread. If you're able to be one step ahead of these concerns, I find that you are so much better able to address them before they turn into a wildfire. Um, and so I, I, I personally do think that public health messaging needs to step up, um, especially in the next few weeks as the vaccine gets rolled out. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw the, the publication by Rochelle Walensky, um, who is a vice uh, president, uh, sorry, um, president-elect um, Biden's new pick for the CDC director. And so she talks about in her paper that the effectiveness of a COVID vaccine is really going to be shaped by the success of the efforts to deliver this in a quick way to the public. And specifically, the important part here on vaccine coverage will require um, vaccine hesitancy to be addressed and there has to be enthusiasm for the vaccine. So really, what good is this vaccine if no one's going to take it? Um, and and so this and so the next few weeks is going to be really important to ensure that we're addressing all of these concerns and fears that people have, so that when the vaccine has a full rollout, um, we actually have people who are enthusiastic about getting it. Well, this is kind of the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and just to start the question, I'll, I'll tell you about. My mom, who is not an anti-vaxxer, all of us in our family have had all our inoculations. She's very pro-science. She's also expressed the view that, you know, I will get this shot, but I don't want to be one of the first ones to get it because it has been made and rolled out so quickly and we're still finding things out about it. Now, she's not vaccine hesitant, but she's certainly open to the arguments that you've described that are out there. And I guess my question is, is how do we get people like that before they get exposed to some of the misinformation that's no doubt going to be circulating? Mm-hmm. And, and that is so true. In, in fact, my father had the exact same sentiment. So I absolutely understand. Um, I think that this is really where family physicians have such a huge role to play. Um, my sister-in-law is a family doctor, and she tells me how often a family would come in concerned about getting influenza vaccine. And my, my sister, sister-in-law will say, you know, I get the flu vaccine every year, as does, you know, my entire family. And and the and that, that's what people want to hear. And, and, pe- and patients want to hear that their family doctor themselves are getting the the COVID vaccination, and that really instill 
instills a lot of confidence in it because um, because Canadians have a huge deal of confidence in their family doctors. We really need to be leveraging that relationship. And the second place that we should be leveraging our relationship are with community organizations and community um, health centers. And again, these are the folks who have the pulse of what their communities are facing, what are some of the concerns their communities are facing, and it could be specific concerns that you know BIPOC communities are facing. Um, and so leveraging the trust they have with their own communities is going to be huge. Um, so really, I think we need to be working on this together, um, hand in hand, all the community organizations, community leaders, um, your family physicians, your nurse practitioners, um, the entire gamut of healthcare and community have to come together um, to get this done. Sabina, thank you so much for uh, walking us through that and, and giving us some helpful advice. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sabina Vora Miller is a clinical pharmacologist. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. We've done lots of coverage on vaccines. We'll probably do a lot more until we've all got needles. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can find us in your favorite podcast player. That's Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, and about 60, 70 others. Pick one. I don't care which one, but if it lets you, rate us, review us, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.